Good morning, Church. Today's scripture reading is from the book of Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 to 13. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of, your, of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation. As I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it is how uh, it is now being revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for the ages in God who created all things, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. This is the word of the Lord. Morning again, church. All right, so we are, as a church, in the middle of a journey through the book of Ephesians. Uh, we handed out the Ephesians scripture journals, so if you have those, you're welcome to uh, read along in those. And uh, they're, again, a great tool if you, have, if you picked one up for reading through the book throughout the week, taking notes, being able to take notes on the sermon, and check back in on what you heard in the sermon as you're reading through Ephesians on your own during the week. Um, we encourage you to be using those if you grab the one. But Ephesians, it's a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in the city of ancient Ephesus. And we saw last week, we're going to see again this week, there's a big issue that, that is on Paul's heart as he's, as he's writing this letter. And he really wants to make sure the people he's writing to understand it. And it's an issue I think many of us can relate to. Have you ever felt like a, a second-class Christian? Like there's the good Christians or the real Christians on one level, and then somewhere beneath them is you. And maybe people in the past said things that made you feel like you didn't really measure up to God's standard, and you feel like, ah, I'm just on a lower level than everyone else. Maybe there are things that you feel keep you from being really as, as good of a Christian as everyone else in the church. Do you ever feel like a second-class Christian? Or maybe you're on the opposite end. Maybe you feel like you're the first class and other people or people from another group are the second class. The idea that there are levels or tiers or hierarchies within the followers of Jesus that separate us from one another 
it's a common feeling that lots of people experience. And it's one that the Christians in this church at Ephesus were prone to. And Paul wants to correct their wrong understanding of the church and their wrong understanding of what it means to be a Christian. And he's really going to dig into that again in today's passage. And what he wants us to really get and understand is that there are no second-class Christians. There are no second-class Christians. We're going to look at past inequality, present equality, and God's plan. But first, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this, this book as a whole, but this letter within this book. God, we thank you for Ephesians and the things that it shows us about you and your plan for the world and our part in it. And I pray that you would just help us to understand your plan and our part in it more clearly today so that we can live in ways that honor you that are in line with who you want us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. So first up, we have past inequality. The book of Ephesians, it's, like I said, written to the church at Ephesus, but it's actually more specifically written to a specific group within that church, the Gentile Christians, the non-Jew Christians, which I think everyone in this room is a Gentile. I don't know if we have any Jewish people in here, but, but it would be us, right? The people in that church who aren't Jewish. And Paul, as he writes to this group, he really, really wants to make sure that they understand what the church is. Right? There were tons of divisions between Jews and Gentiles in their world. We talked about some of them last week, like the fact that there was a widespread Jewish belief in that day that the only reason Gentiles, people like you and me, existed was to fuel the fires of hell. Right? There was hatred, there was division. Throughout history, the Jews had enjoyed a place of privilege as God's people. And all of a sudden, this new thing called the church comes along. And there are Jewish people in there, but there are also Gentile people in there. And it would be so easy when these groups come together into one meeting place for everyone to just assume, like, the Jews have always had this place of privilege. So the Jews are the first-class Christians, the better ones. The Gentiles, they should just be thankful that they get to join for the ride. That, that's the tendency that they would naturally tend towards, seeing the Gentile Christians as second-class Christians, not quite on the same level as the Jewish Christians. And as Paul writes this letter to this church, one of the huge things he wants them to see is that the church is a new community. The church is a new humanity connected in Jesus. If you were here last week, that was the whole sermon last week. And guess what? Paul's not done talking about it yet. He wrote about it in the second half of chapter two of Ephesians. And now he's established that Gentile Christians are truly one with Jewish Christians. We're all united in Jesus. He's ready to move on and pray for the Gentile Christians but he's so excited about this idea that he just can't do it yet. Like you can actually see, if you look at chapter three, verse one, he starts, for this reason, I, Paul, which if you go to chapter three, verse 14, where he starts his actual prayer for them, he starts it the same way. For this reason, I, dot, dot, dot. He's, he's like starting the prayer. And then he's like, no, I'm not done yet. I can't, I can't move on yet. I need to go back and finish and expand on what I was saying before, because this is so important. I, I can't 
move on without making sure you've absolutely got this down. He wanted to go back and explain it more so they could definitely grasp the fact that we are all equal in Jesus. We're all connected in Jesus. And it was wise of Paul to do this. I mean, the Gentiles had had it repeated to them over and over and over throughout their lives. You're outsiders from God's people. The Jews, we, we really know God. We really have a connection with him. And it would be so easy to feel like, yeah, you're, you're included now, but you're less. The message had likely sunk into their hearts and shaped the way they thought of themselves, the way they viewed themselves. Changing their image of themselves was going to take more than just a few verses. There were questions that needed to be answered, like, if this is really God's plan, then why has it been for over a thousand years that the Jews have had this place of privilege and looked down on us? Like, what, what grounds do we have for changing the way things have been for over a thousand years? And Paul's answer is that our grounds for seeing all Christians as equal is God himself. God has revealed this picture of a unified, multi-ethnic church is truly his plan. And as for why they didn't understand that in the past, God's plan of salvation, his work in the world, it's not revealed all at once. It's revealed a little bit at a time. The previous generations, they saw part of God's plan, but not the full thing. They knew that God was going to bless Abraham and his family. They knew things like God had given them the law as a way of living if they were his people. They, they knew enough to guide them into obedience to him. They knew enough to know that God was trustworthy and he could be counted on. They tried their best to live in line with what God had revealed to them, but they didn't know the whole picture. And because they didn't know the whole picture, they didn't always get everything right. So if you look through the Old Testament, you can see clearly in the Old Testament, God has a plan to bless the nations that are not Jewish, right? He talks specifically about various nations and how he's going to bless them. And he talks in his promise to Abraham, he says, through your family, I'm going to bless the entire world, not just your descendants, the Israelites, but everyone. And so they knew there was a plan for everyone else, but it would be so easy to assume, you know, we're God's chosen people. God showed us how to live. The way that he's going to bless everyone else is by having them become Jewish. And then they'll be blessed because they'll be part of us. And it, as long as the other nations refuse to become Jewish, the Jewish people felt like, yeah, we can continue looking down on them because we have this position of privilege. They didn't understand the full picture, so they didn't know how to live properly in light of it. It's kind of like, do we have any video game players in here? Yeah? All right. So have you ever played a video game where there's a map? Only you can't see everything that's happening on the entire map. You can only see what's happening in the area right around where you are or maybe where you've been already. So when I was a teenager, I played this game called Age of Empires. And you had a map, and you had all these civilizations on the map, and you had to try and build up your civilization 
and conquer all the other ones and be the last man standing. And there was a map, but you could only see what was happening on the map if your people or your buildings were in that area. And if they weren't in that area, the map was just sort of dark there. And you had to guess about what was happening in that part of the map. And sometimes you guess right, sometimes you guess wrong, but you couldn't know what was happening until you saw what was happening there. And when it comes to God's plan for the world, the people before Jesus, they were living in a map where huge chunks of it were dark. But what Paul says here in this passage is that when Jesus came, his life and death and resurrection, and God sending us the Holy Spirit and the writing of the New Testament, all of these things are like a cheat code that reveals the entire map to us. So people living before these things didn't have the full map. They had to guess what was in the dark areas, but, but living where we are now, we can see the full map. We can see that God's plan has always been for non-Jewish people, the Gentiles, to be completely included as equals in God's plan. But for the perspective of people who lived before Jesus, that was an easy detail to miss. And Paul wants us to understand, yes, people who lived before Jesus, they misunderstood God's plan. They used their ethnicity to look down on others. That happened in the past. But now we can see God's plan. We know there's no room for that type of elitism or judgmentalism in the church. God's plan is for everyone in the church to be equal. So let's look at this present equality because things have changed now from how they used to be. Not God's plan. God's plan is the same. We see in verse 11 right here, God's plan, it's an eternal plan. It's existed from eternity. But our understanding of that plan, our understanding of what it looks like and means to live properly under that plan have changed. Several times in this passage, Paul refers to God's plan as a mystery. Now, when, when Paul calls God's plan a mystery, that doesn't mean it's like an episode of Scooby-Doo. You guys know Scooby-Doo? Yeah? It's not like that. It's not like we have to go around and collect the clues and, and find the bad guy and pull the mask off his face. No. Biblically, a mystery is something that we as humans could never figure out on our own. It's God's plan for the universe that was hidden before, but now has been shown to us. It was hidden before, now it's been shown. And so when God, Paul calls God's plan a mystery, he means God's secret plan for the world, for the universe, well, exactly what he's been talking about here. Like in chapter one, when he talked about how he's gonna unite all things in Christ. We talked about that a few weeks ago. That plan, before Jesus, no one knew what it was. They knew parts of it, but they couldn't understand the full thing. And they tried to figure out what the hidden parts were. But all of a sudden through Jesus, God shows us the full thing. The mystery is revealed. The bigger picture makes sense. So simply by being alive now, rather than 2,100 years ago, you and I can understand things about God and his plan and what he's doing in the world that the greatest heroes of the faith in the Old Testament never understood. Isn't that incredible? And Here's the crazy thing. Paul says twice, this mystery was made known by being revealed. 
It's not that we worked really hard and figured it out through our effort. God just stepped in and showed it to us. And the big detail that God showed us that Paul is so excited about, he wants us to make sure we get it, is that the Jews and the Gentiles are now fully equal as God's people. Like if you look at chapter three, verse six, there are three words here. Fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers. Each of those in Greek is one word. And each of those in Greek, the word starts with a prefix that means with. So we are fellow heirs. We're with one another as heirs of God. We're members of the same body with one another. We are partakers, probably misses a lot of the nuance there, but, but it's, it's we're sharing together in partaking of the promises that God has given us through Jesus in the gospel. We are fully equal. We all get the same rights and privileges. If we are God's people, we stand together before God. Paul's saying there's no such thing as a second-class Christian. Salvation is completely a gift. Did you notice during the scripture reading, the word gift or given showed up again and again and again in this passage? Four times, gift language appears here. Paul doesn't want us to miss this detail. Salvation is 100% a gift. He really wants us to understand this position before God, it's not earned. And you know what that means? No one deserves it any more than anyone else. No one can look down on someone else because, oh, you've done less than me to earn it. Because none of us earned it. It's a gift. And these truths about God, like we said, they're revealed to us, not figured out through our great research. So we can't look down on others because we know more than them. We can't have others look down on us because they know more than us. It's been given to us. Did you notice also made known shows up three times in this passage. And every single time it's passive. Active verb means you do something. Like I, I hit this stand. Passive verb means something happens to you. Like if this falls down and hits me, that, that's passive for me because I'm the one getting hit. These verbs are all passive, which means you didn't do it. It happened to you. It was shown to you. It was made known to you. It was revealed to you. You didn't figure it out through great research. God made it known to us through his initiative as a gift. And this is a message from God, this message of equality, which means it's authoritative. It carries weight. And because God gave it freely, there's no room for any of us who receive this message to look down on others. We're all equal. So let me ask you, do you have a tendency to either look down on others and see them as second-class Christians or to look down on yourself and see yourself as a second-class Christian? I mean, I know we live in another part of the world thousands of years later, but at the most fundamental level, the core of who we are, we're not that different from the people who lived in Bible times. Just like it was easy for them to feel superior or inferior towards one another, it's easy for us to do the same thing. And maybe for us, it's not as much about race, although it still can be, but it can also be linked to so many other things. 
like how much you give financially to the church compared to others. I feel better because I give more. I feel worse because I give less. How much you serve in the church compared to others. How much sin is in your life compared to others. How well you know the Bible compared to others. Whether you have a, a certain leadership position in the church how long you've been at the church, how many friends you have at the church, how much influence your friend group has at the church. So many things can become the basis that we use for looking down on others or feeling bad about ourselves. And those things are all on an individual level, but it can also happen on a group level. We can feel like our church is better or worse than other churches. Like, oh, our, our church is so much better than the church down the street because our teaching is so much more biblical than theirs. That church down the street, they're so much better than us. Do you realize how many more people they're reaching on a Sunday morning? Oh, those pastors on TV, they're so much better Christians than the rest of us. Look how many more people they're reaching with God's message. Oh, those pastors on TV, they're so much worse Christians than all the rest of us. Look how they've watered down the message to make themselves more famous. We can do it on so many different things, so many different levels, so many standards that we create to put hierarchies and tiers among Christians. We use so many things to divide us. And did you notice all these things that we use to divide us and separate us from one another so that we can rest, they rest on our effort and our accomplishment. None of them rest on Jesus and what he's done. Anything we use as Christians to divide us from one another, to separate us from one another, to create a hierarchy or tiers, it rests on what we have done, not on what Jesus has done. And Paul is saying, if we're really saved by Jesus, if we're really saved by grace as a gift, not through our effort, then our salvation and our standing before God and our standing in the church rest completely on Jesus. And that means we're all equal. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. There's no room for judgment or hierarchy. We're just equal. Actually, Paul takes this a step further in verse eight. He says, I am the very least of all the saints. He's saying, look, it, we're all equal, but if you really have to hold on to this idea that there's some sort of tears within Christianity, with some people being better, some people being worse, here's how the tears work. Everyone else is on top as first-class Christians. And me, an apostle, a missionary, someone whose job is to spread the good news about Jesus throughout the world, I'm on the bottom. I'm the second-class one. Does that sound right to you? Does that sound like how you would organize the hierarchy? Everyone else at top, Paul on bottom? <laughs> probably not. I think we would do the opposite. We'd probably put Paul on top and everyone else down below, right? We look at that and we say, of course, there's no way that Paul can go on the bottom. But here's what he's saying. My grounds for being on top or bottom or in Jesus is exactly the same as yours. He saved me as a gift. I don't deserve it any more than you do. There's no more reason for anyone else to be at the bottom than for me to be there. The gospel fully equalizes us. It doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile. It doesn't matter if you're Paul versus all the rest of us normal Christians. It doesn't matter how big the divisions between us were apart from Christ. Once we become Christians, the division and hierarchy are removed and we're called to live out 
a new identity in Jesus. You can think of it kind of like in sports. There are lots of stories in sports of people who are just bitter rivals, who hated one another, and then they join the same team. And what happens? They have to put aside their rivalry to, to play together because otherwise they're not going to have any success playing together. Do we have any basketball fans here? A couple? Okay. So if you had to think of the greatest basketball team of all time, what, what team comes to mind? Wrong. <laughs> so I'm not talking about team overall. I'm talking about like the greatest season or, or franchise, like the dynasty, the greatest of all time in basketball. Anyone? What was that? The, 90, the 1990s Bulls. They were great. There's obviously debate and discussion about who's the greatest basketball team of all time, but the 1990s Bulls always make it into that discussion. They had Michael Jordan. They had Scottie Pippen. They had Dennis Rodman. Everyone knows how, how dominant they were, if you know anything about basketball. But did you know, before they became that team, Dennis Rodman and Scottie Pippen, two of the key players from that team, hated one another. They had just bad blood between them. They did not get along. It was so bad that when the Bulls were thinking about bringing Dennis Rodman onto the team, the coach, Phil Jackson, was meeting with Dennis Rodman, and he told him, you need to go apologize to Scottie Pippen. <laughs> A full-grown professional athlete, the coach, who's not even his coach, just comes and says, you need to apologize to this guy for all the stuff that has happened between you. So they went out and they had a five-minute conversation where Dennis Rodman apologized for all the stuff that happened between them. They came back inside, and it was only after having that conversation that Phil Jackson said, now, would you be interested in playing for the Bulls? And Rodman said, I don't care one way or the other. Um, but he eventually joined the team, and they became one of the most dominant teams in NBA history. Scottie Pippen and Dennis Rodman were bitter rivals. They hated one another. They did not get along. And then they joined the same team. They had to put aside their differences. There was no more room for looking down on one another. They were equal. And if they wanted to accomplish their mission of winning a championship, they needed to rely on one another. They needed to trust one another. They needed to treat one another as equals for the sake of accomplishing that goal. And in the same way, all the things that divide us as Christians, all the things that make us feel better or worse than other Christians, Apart from Christ, they may be true differences. But in Christ, our unity, our connection, our equality, the fact that we're on the same team, those are the things that are primary. And if we're going to live out our mission properly, we need to see one another properly. And we need to treat one another properly as equals. And so what is that mission that we're called to live out together? Well, it's God's plan. Let's look at God's plan. We get to be part of God's eternal plan together. And what is that plan? Paul tells us in verse 10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So we're going to see in chapter 6, a few weeks from now, 
The rulers and authorities are the spiritual beings who oppose God. Like fallen angels who resist God, don't want to follow him. We'll talk about that more later. But that's who Paul says are our true enemies. They can see God in a way that you and I could only dream of right now, but they've rejected him. They've decided to fight against him because his ways seem weak and foolish to them. And God's plan is to use the church, that's you and me, to let his enemies know how wise he is. Did you know that? God's plan is to use you and me to let his enemies know how wise he is. How does that feel? It's a big task, a little intimidating. (laughs) Does that seem like a little foolish of God to you? I mean, I've been part of some churches over the years. Churches like to fight within themselves. Churches aren't really known for being strong and powerful like governments or big corporations. Like if I wanted to, to change the world and show off my wisdom and power, I would go for the, the big, powerful, strong ones, world leaders. I don't know if you follow the news about churches at all, but if you have the past few years, it's just scandal after scandal after scandal. Of all the groups God could have chosen to show off his wisdom, why the church? Isn't that one of the most foolish options possible? It it certainly seems to be, but isn't that how God always works? The cross was foolish and weak but it's the power of God for salvation. God conquered over his enemies through dying, death, showing that he had greater power. The church looks powerless and weak. It's easy to overlook the church, to take for granted that it's small, it can't accomplish too much. And yet somehow, through the church, with all its faults and all its flaws, and all its weaknesses, God has spread the good news of Jesus all the way around the world over the past 2,000 years. God has used the church to show off his wisdom, to show off the ways he brings strength from weakness, to, to show off to his enemies how wise he is so they can see that they are the truly foolish ones for resisting him. God's enemies, they they rebel against him because his ways seem weak. But in the end, God's seemingly weak and and foolish ways triumph over all his enemies. And you know what's super crazy about this? Like for me, I can imagine a world where like God has plan A, plan B, plan C for how he's gonna let his enemies know how wise he is. And the church is like plan H on that list. Can you imagine that world? But Paul says that's exactly the opposite of how it works. The church is and always has been plan A, God's first choice for reaching the world, for showing off his wisdom to his enemies. The church, you and me. Like if you follow the logic of verses eight through 10 right here, Paul, he's preaching, he's sharing the gospel, he's going out and doing all this stuff. And the goal of that is that through the church, 
the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That's the goal of everything that Paul is doing, that it would lead to the church being able to be part of this mission. And then in verse 11, he starts out by saying, this was according to the eternal purpose that God realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's a continuation of the same idea. Using the church to show God's wisdom was God's eternal plan. From before he made the world, from before sin came in and and messed everything up, God's plan was to use the church to share his good news and show off his wisdom to the entire universe. We have a job to you guys. Obviously, that has huge implications for you and me and, and our lives. The first, we have a job to do. God's plan is to use the church that's, that's us, you and me, to show off his wisdom throughout the universe. That's a huge task. So how do we do that? How do we show off God's wisdom as a church? And I think the biggest way is just by being who we truly are. What is the church? We're a multi-ethnic family of people who love one another because God first loved us. That's what we are. We are a multi-ethnic family of people who love one another because God first loved us. We don't show off God's wisdom just by having the greatest sermons, although good sermons that encourage us to love one another and live out this family life can be helpful in that process. But if, if our preaching and teaching is amazing, solid, the best out there, and no lives are being changed, no love is being shown, No unity is being experienced. God doesn't look wise. He looks foolish and weak. God looks wise when people from different backgrounds and different ethnic groups and different income levels and different education levels all come together in love to encourage one another and support one another despite all our differences. From the world's perspective, all these differences should be keeping us apart. But when we demonstrate that the blood of Jesus overcomes these differences, and when we live as if it's true that there are no second-class Christians, we show off God's wisdom to the watching world. And I realize that that idea of of the church being God's tool for making his wisdom known, it, it might feel kind of abstract. But at the most basic level, here's what it means for us. The church not a building, not an event, but this family and community of people. It's central to God's plan for the universe. And if we want to be part of that plan, then this people needs to be central to our lives as well. How could we do anything less? Paul says the church is directly at the center of the message of the gospel and God's plan for the universe. Remember, God's plan is to unite all things in Christ, to take all of the decay and and death and the way things fall apart and to reverse that and make everything in the universe the way that it's supposed to be, to bring healing and restoration and life, to fix it all. And the church is right at the center of that plan. If the church is central to God's plan, if it's so core a part of the gospel message, but it's an afterthought to us. 
What does that say about where we truly stand in relation to God and his plan? So how do we make the church central in our lives? Well, an idea we mentioned last week, I'll mention it again, just get to know one another. Grab lunch with someone from the church after service and, and just learn who are you? What, what do you do? What do you enjoy? What makes you tick? Get to know one another so that we can love one another as a family. Also commit to serving in the church. We have so many needs in so many different ministries here, whether it's setup and tech, the welcoming team, bridge kids, music, youth, probably lots of other areas. Where can you connect and use your skills and passions to bless the church community? Serving in the church is a great way of making the church a priority. Another idea, joining the church as a member is a great way of making the church central in our lives. It's a way of publicly committing to the church, publicly declaring that this church is my church home, my church family. It's formalizing your commitment to the church, asking for the church to hold you accountable in living out this mission. And if maybe you're here today and you're like, the idea of making the church central in my life sounds great, but I don't know if the bridge is the church that I would want to commit to. That's fine. Where is a church you can commit to? If, if the bridge is the church that you can commit to and be a member, that's awesome. If somewhere else is the church that you feel like you'd better be able to commit to and be a member, that's also awesome. The problem is if, if there's nowhere that you can commit. Because if you don't feel like you can commit anywhere, you need to examine how do your priorities line up with God's priorities for you. And again, these ideas aren't the only ways we can make the church central in our lives, but they're a starting point. God has a huge mission for us, a huge job. It requires things that are beyond our power to do, which is why, second, we need help. This job, it's too big for us. That's why God changed our reality. We saw a couple weeks ago in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, when we were spiritually dead, God made us alive. And that life gives us the ability to operate in new ways. We saw last week in chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, God took us who were far apart from one another and brought us close to one another through Jesus. He made us both one. He created a new community where we can live out that new reality that he's given us. But it's still a huge mission. And God understands that. And that's why... It says in verse 12 that in Jesus, we have boldness and access with confidence to God. Because we can't do this ourselves. That's part of God's wisdom in choosing the church for this mission. Do you realize that? Like, he gets to show off his power, not by choosing the rich, the famous, the really, really, really smart who can obviously make a difference. God gets to show off his wisdom and power by choosing people like you and me who are weak, who are powerless, who are unable to save ourselves, much less do anything good for anyone else. And he uses us to make his wisdom known. He looks wise because he takes people who are incapable of doing this and does more than we could imagine through us.
But the only way that that is possible is by us living dependent on him. And so he has given us free and full access to his presence so we can come to him in prayer and ask him for help doing all the things that we're supposed to do but that we just can't do in order to live out this mission God has for us and show off God's wisdom to the world, we need to be people of powerful and bold and desperate prayer. Without prayer, we cannot accomplish this mission. And then third, we need endurance. Again, the church, it often looks weak and feeble. Paul, he was one of the most influential leaders in the early church, and and he's writing this letter from where? from prison. Why is he in prison? Because on an earthly level, the state, the political powers look so much more powerful than God. When we get caught up in what we can see, it's so easy to get discouraged, to feel down about, (laughs) God, really, you chose the church? Out of all the things you could have chosen to make your wisdom known, this this is what you did. Are you sure that was a good choice? But in verse 13, Paul calls them and us not to lose heart, not to get discouraged, but to endure. He's saying, yeah, I'm in prison. It it may seem that me being in prison is bad news. That me being in prison is a sign that God's ways are weak and powerless, that God's mission is sort of teetering on the edge of failure because it's not strong enough. But guess what? The fact that Paul's in prison actually means God's plan is working. How so? Well, the earthly rulers who locked him up, who are aligned with these rulers and authorities in the heavenly places who oppose God, they only locked Paul up because they felt threatened by what he was doing. God's mission is being accomplished. His wisdom is being displayed and seen even when it looks like it's not. He caught their attention because God was doing amazing, powerful things through him. God is going to see his plans through to completion. He's going to let his enemies know how wise he is through you and me. And because we know God's going to see this plan through to completion, Paul calls us to have a bigger perspective, to see that suffering is for glory. Yes, it's hard now, but the end result is glorious. God wins and we're on his team. How awesome is that? So church, Jesus died not only to save you and keep you out of hell. He died to create a new family for God, a new people who are connected in love to God and to one another, a new family where we're all equal in Christ, a new family where we're all united in pursuing his mission, a new community where there are no second-class Christians, a new people that you and I get to be part of today. And as we live out this new reality that God has given us, we get to show off God's wisdom to the watching world and the spiritual forces behind it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love and your wisdom that we confess often doesn't make sense to us. It it seems foolish because we know our own weakness. We know our inability to do great things for you through our power. And yet you choose to do great things through us by your power. 
And so we praise you for that, God, and we pray that you would forgive us for the times that we've failed to properly live out what it means to be your people, for the times we've judged others or felt bad about ourselves because we've lost sight of this reality of the new people you have formed in Jesus. I pray that you would help us to live out this reality that you've given us of us being your people. In Jesus' name, amen. So God created a new people for himself. And we, like I said, are so prone to forget. And yet he felt that it was so important that he gave us reminders again and again of the fact that we are his people. We're a family with one another. We're connected and united with one another. And one of the things that families do that that reminds them of their identity as a family is they eat together. And so God has given the church a meal, communion. It used to be a full meal. Now we have some bread and wine or juice. But it's, it's a way of us remembering what Jesus has done to form this new family, how his body was broken and his blood was shed to rescue us. But it's also a way of remembering that this new family exists, that you and I get to be part of God's family through that sacrifice. And so we together right now are going to take communion as a way of of celebrating Jesus' death on the cross that rescues us from our sins, that gives us forgiveness, but also as a way of celebrating that through Jesus' death on the cross, you and I are family. We're connected to one another. We're equal with one another. And so I want to invite the ushers to come forward and and hand out the elements. Uh, This is for Christians. This is for people who are part of God's family. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian yet, we're so glad that you're here with us. We ask that you just let the elements go past as they come around. Um, And we're going to give you a couple minutes to pray and reflect. And in a couple minutes, I'll come back up and lead us as we take these elements together.